0: Welcome to this week's sermon audio from Covenant Presbyterian Church of Fort Smith. Covenant is a church devoted to theological depth, intimate relationships, joyous worship, relentless evangelism, and sacrificial service. Hebrews chapter 10. Before I read that, let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father, you have heard from us this morning as we've raised our voices in song and in prayer and in confession. But now, Father, we would hear a word from you. And so we pray for the one who preaches, that you would quicken his mind and guard his lips, that he would rightly divide the word of truth for your glory and our edification. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning with verse 19. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. The book of Hebrews is actually a letter that was written to Jewish Christians Jewish Christians who had suffered intense persecution in their past. They were publicly ridiculed. Some of them had their property confiscated. Others were thrown into prison. But these believers had remained steadfast in their faith. But now there was danger of more persecution coming. And the writer of this letter... He doesn't tell us how he knows this, but he knows, or at least he strongly fears, that there are many Christians in this Jewish community who were considering renouncing their faith in Christ and returning to Judaism. Their circumstances had just become too severe, it seems. But he writes this letter. It is, is in essence, a, a... Theological argument is a very long theological argument against leaving Christ. Even if it is for that ancient religion that God established himself from Mount Sinai. Our passage this morning is a culmination of the first nine and a half chapters of this theological argument. And in this passage that we're going to look at this morning the writer reveals to these believers that it is futile to leave Christ and return to Judaism. And he's going to show them how it is futile by revealing God's purpose in establishing Judaism in the first place. So let's look at what the writer has to say. He begins in verse 19 by declaring the exclusivity of Christ. He begins by declaring to these believers that the only way anyone, anyone can find forgiveness of sin and reconciliation with God is through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. And then because he is writing to Jewish believers who are considering leaving Christ for Judaism, he uses some elements from Judaism to make his point. First, he writes in verse 19 about entering the holy places. The, the recipients of, of this letter would immediately recognize the reference. The writer is talking about the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies was a secluded room in the temple. It was the most sacred part of the temple. Inside the Holy of Holies, there were only two Two furnishings, the Ark of the Covenant and the Mercy Seat. The Ark of the Covenant was a fairly large, ornate wooden box that was overlaid inside and out with pure gold. Placed inside the box were the two stone tablets that had been engraved by the finger of God with the Ten Commandments. On top of the box was a cover. And this cover was called the Mercy Seat. The Mercy Seat was made out of pure gold. And on top of this cover, at each end, there was a statue of a cherubim, which is a specific order of angels. Now, it's important for us to realize what the recipients of this letter realized. The writer is talking about a place of significant spiritual importance. Remember we're in a a secluded room. Inside this room are the, the two stone tablets with the Ten Commandments. These tablets were a testimony to the holiness and righteousness of God. Also in this room you have the two statues of the angels. Representation. Of angels who are actually charged with attending the throne of God in heaven. This room, the Holy of Holies, represented the very presence of God with the people of Israel. In fact, when God gave instructions for building the Holy of Holies in the mercy seat, He told Israel, I will meet with you in that room. I will appear above the mercy seat between the two cherubim and I will speak. To you. Oh, this is, this is a sacred place. Once a year, the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies, carrying with him the blood of a sacrificed animal. And he would come into that room, into the presence of God, and he would sprinkle that blood on top of the mercy seat to atone for Israel's sins. It was in this room that Israel found forgiveness and reconciliation with God. But the writer is not writing about that sacred room in Jerusalem. He is writing about the spiritual reality that that room only represented. When he talks about entering the holy places, he's talking about entering the real holy of holies. He's talking about our actually coming into heaven itself, into the very presence of God, to receive forgiveness of sin and reconciliation to him. And here he says in verse 19 that the only way you can enter the real holy of holies, the only way you can come into God's presence and find his forgiveness is through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to write about not only entering the holy of holies, but how we enter the holy of holies. He says that we enter through the curtain Again, the recipients of this letter would have recognized the reference. He's talking about that veil that hung in the temple. It was a thick, ornate tapestry that hung from ceiling to floor and wall to wall. And it separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. This curtain represented a barrier that exists between God and man. A barrier that could only be crossed by an intermediary who had been appointed by God. An intermediary who would pass through the curtain into the Holy of Holies bringing forgiveness of sins for the people of Israel. But the writer is not talking about that physical curtain hanging in the temple in Jerusalem. He's talking about the the thing that is spiritual that it represents. Here he is saying, if you're going to actually come into the real holy of holies and find God's forgiveness and be reconciled to him, then you must pass through the spiritual curtain of the crucified and resurrected body of Christ. And that's the very testimony of Christ himself. For Jesus said this, he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In this passage, he reveals the purpose of Judaism, the real purpose of Judaism. Judaism, as I said earlier, was established by God from Mount Sinai. This was not a human construct. This was given, uh, it had a divine purpose. But the divine purpose of Judaism was never to provide a remedy for sin. The purpose in Judaism was to present symbols, pictures, shadows that pointed forward to Christ. Well, if it didn't provide a real remedy for sin, how were Old Testament saints saved? If the shedding of bulls and goats and lambs didn't for bring forgiveness for any, then how were they saved? When these Old Testament saints came to God by faith, Submitting to the ordinances of Judaism, God applied to them the saving work of Christ that He would accomplish for them later. We look back to the cross to be saved. Old Testament saints looked forward to the cross to be saved. Well, now the passage, the focus of this passage shifts. Having reminded of the exclusivity of Christ, the the writer of this letter now issues a series of exhortations. In verses 21 through 25, he is going to urge these believers, and he urges us as well, to do those things that reflect genuine faith in Jesus Christ. And here he tells them, if you once responded to Christ by faith, then god expects you to keep on responding to christ by faith faith is not a one time event it is a lifetime event he gives three quick excuse me three key ways that we are to keep on responding to christ first we are to draw near draw near the image here is of the Israelites coming to the tabernacle to receive a word from God. Draw near. Here we are urged to actually come into the presence of God through the whole of our worship, through our private prayers and devotions, through corporate worship, through our personal obedience to His commandments. Draw near. And we are urged to draw near because we need to draw near. The temptations of this world would steal your affection for heavenly things. The trials of this life would rob you of the joy of your salvation. Left to your own, your own strength alone, you would become cold and bitter in your faith. So it is for our benefit that we draw near It's for our benefit that we come into the presence of God to fellowship with Him, to receive His mercy and grace to sustain us in our faith. But if we're going to actually be successful in drawing near to God, there are some conditions that have to be met in us first. First, the writer says that we must draw near with a true heart. A true heart. The Bible identifies the heart as the center of emotion, intellect, and volition. It is the driving force of every single human operation. Your every desire, your every motive, your every thought, your every action flows out of your heart. Now these believers that this letter is written to, they certainly had a heart for God. They had proven by their their very lives that they had a longing, a desire to come into his presence and find his forgiveness. Up to now they had chosen persecution rather than abandon their true worship of God. But now, now they were considering another way. A way other than Christ. And the writer of this letter tells them here, Yes you have a heart for God. But it is not enough to just have a heart for God. You must have a heart for God that is true. True. We cannot. We cannot allow our drawing near to God. Our coming into his presence to ever be corrupted by. Any falsehood about who he is. Or what he has done. Or how we might come to him. Our drawing near must be rooted in truth. And contrary to the wisdom of this world, you and I, and then that's maybe a shock, you and I are not the arbiters of truth concerning God. You and I are not the authority of what God's nature is or how we are to approach Him. I want you to consider something. God is spirit. He has no physical substance. He is spirit and he is everywhere present. And yet he is completely invisible to us. How could we possibly know anything about him? Oh, we can look at creation. We can look at creation and see the the evidence of his existence. We can survey the the vastness of the universe, the complexity of the universe, the order of the universe, the beauty of the universe, and we can logically conclude that God possesses infinite knowledge and power. But the things that are visible to us, the things that our physical senses, eyes, ears, the things that, that that we can detect by our physical senses, don't tell us anything else about God. They don't tell us, if, if he, is he kind? Or is he cruel? Or is he completely indifferent to us? All we can see is his power. All we can see is his wisdom. Does he want to have anything to do with us? Or are we just a matrix that he wound up and turned loose just for his own entertainment? If we're to know the truth about God, about his nature, about who he really is and how we're to come to him, then we have to receive that from God. He's the only one who knows. And God has revealed it to us. He has revealed who he is and how we're to come in his word and in his Son. And that truth, that truth is how we're supposed to draw near to God. But not only are we to draw near with a true heart, but we're to also draw near in full assurance of faith. We are come to God fully convinced that if we come, He will receive us. He will receive us. But there is one thing that hinders us from actually being able to come to God in full assurance of faith. And that thing is us. Rather than believe what God has said. God has said that he, if you're in Christ, He has forgiven you of all your trespasses. The ones you committed yesterday, the ones you'll commit today, the ones you'll commit tomorrow. They are wiped out. The slate is clean. God has said in his word that if you'll come to him he will receive us. But rather than believe that we are prone to look at ourselves and our own unworthiness. Our conscience continually stirs up our faithlessness. And it continually stirs up the ever accumulating number of our sins against God. And it causes us to balk. It can cause us to wonder Has He really forgiven me? I mean, I, I've done so many things. Has He really? I couldn't forgive that in someone else. Has He really forgiven me? That kind of doubt is not God's will for anybody who is in Christ. If you are in Christ, it is God's will that you come to his throne often and that you come boldly, confidently that he will receive you, that he has forgiven you, that he has reconciled you to himself. Not because of any good thing in you, but for the sake of his son who loved you and died for you. How do you come to God in full assurance of faith? You come in the way that that great hymn tells us. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. And when we draw near. With a true heart. And in full assurance of faith. A wondrous thing happens. God imparts His grace to us. God speaks to our hearts and our minds, reminding us of His favor. He bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. James 4.8 puts it this way, Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Well, not only are we to draw near, the second exhortation we have is we are to hold fast, hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. <clears throat> Here we are urged to be resolute in our belief and in the confession Of our belief. We are to keep on believing and keep on professing the basic tenets of the Christian faith. We are to keep on believing and keep on confessing that Christ died for our sins, that he was resurrected for our justification, that he ascended into heaven and is now seated at the right hand of God the Father, interceding for me. And one day he will return. And receive us to himself. We are to keep on believing and keep on confessing. That salvation is in Christ alone. By grace alone. Through faith alone. To the glory of God alone. And we're to keep on believing and keep on professing until we breathe our last breath. Or until Christ comes back for us. But there's something else we need to see about holding fast. And this is found in if you want to turn over there, you can. It's a short verse. Hebrews 3, verse 14. <clears throat> I'll give you just a second to find that. I turn there myself, I'd make sure I wrote it down right. Yes. Hebrews 3:14. This is what the writer of this letter says. For we have come to share in Christ if, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Here we don't hear an exhortation to hold fast like we find in chapter 10. Here we hear a proclamation. A declaration that everyone who is truly in Christ will hold fast. Firm To the very end Here he says that our holding fast Is proof That we are truly in Jesus Christ Here he is saying that a saving faith Is an enduring faith But this should not cause us any consternation We should not fret that someday circumstances might be such in our life that I might lose my faith in Christ and and walk away from Him. God is all-wise and all-merciful, and He has not left us to hold fast in our own strength. God is working in us, to ensure that we hold fast. First Peter 1 Peter 1.5 and I'll just paraphrase this. He says that God by his infinite power. Is guarding our faith. Until our salvation is realized. God himself by his infinite power is guarding my faith. You will persevere to the end if you are in Christ. Because God himself is preserving you to the end. It is a work of God. Paul put it this way in Philippians 1.6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God will do it so hold fast. The third exhortation that we find is is this, we are to consider the body. God's design for the Christian life is not one of solitary existence. God never intended for us to come to him by faith in Christ and then live out the rest of our Christian life like some kind of some, some kind of spiritual lone ranger. No, God's design for the Christian life is one of active involvement in the community of faith, in the church. When we came to Christ by faith, a mysterious and spiritual thing happened. You were actually united. I don't know how it works, but I know what the Word of God says. We were united with Christ and not only were we united with Christ, but we were united with everyone else who is in Christ. i want to read a couple of verses to you. This is from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. The first one is 1 Corinthians 12 verse 13. Paul writes, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. In that same chapter, verse 27, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of of it you're not members of a club this isn't a religious fraternity you are part of a spiritual body every week like we did this morning we confess our faith together and we usually use like we did this morning the apostles creed and one of the statements in that confession is this I believe in the communion of saints We confess that, but how often do we think about what it means? What does it mean, the communion of saints? The communion of saints is a shared spiritual obligation among believers. And it is an obligation that is driven by our affection and loyalty to each other. Second ago, I read two verses from you to you from First Corinthians chapter 12. That entire chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians speaks to our spiritual connection to each other. And it speaks to the obligation that arises from that connection that we have to each other. And what it says here in 1 Corinthians 12 is that. Each one of us is to be working for the common good of Christ's body. We are to be working for the common good of the church. We are to speak and act in ways that promote faith, godly love, and good works in each other. And we do this through the exercise of our spiritual gifts. God has given to each one of us at least one spiritual gift. This is not a natural endowment that you were born with. This is something that, this is an enablement that you received when you came to Christ by faith. It's a spiritual gift. You may not know what your spiritual gift is, but if you are faithfully Putting yourself forward to serve your church. God's going to work you into your place. Where your spiritual gift is useful. It's good to know what your spiritual gifts are. But it's not necessary. Just be faithful. And God will lead you. To where your spiritual gift is effective. And God in his wisdom has not gifted us all the same. He has distributed within the church a variety, a diversity of gifts. So that what is lacking in one might be provided by another. You see, I need to be nurtured by your gifts. And you need to be nurtured by my gifts. We all play an integral part in the spiritual growth of the church. And as we exercise our gifts, the whole body is built up, growing in the faith and knowledge of Christ. But our obligation to Christ's body is not limited to our inner spiritual needs. We are also to provide care for the outer temporal needs that exist within the body. We are to do what we can to ease the suffering, the emotional, Physical struggles that exist in the church. We are to demonstrate our love for each other in our sympathies, but also in the sharing of our graces. Why should we be present in the body? Why should we be lovingly engaged in the body? Because that is God's design for us. And not only that. It is the mark of true discipleship. Jesus said this. By this all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. Let's pray. Father we know that. Your son is the only way that we can come to you and find forgiveness of sin. And we pray that you would continually reinforce that for us. And we pray, Father, that you would help us to keep on responding to Christ by faith. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon. We hope you have grown in your knowledge of and love for God. Covenant Presbyterian is a PCA church that meets for worship on Sunday mornings at 1030 a.m. Our address is 120 North 9th Street in historic downtown Fort Smith, Arkansas. For more information about Covenant, visit our website at www.cpcfs.org.